Hi, this is Ned Siegfried from Siegfried & Jensen. As proud sponsors of BeliefCast, we hope you are inspired by Todd's weekly podcasts, which contain so many courageous stories of recovery and personal growth. Remember, it's not what happened in the past that matters, it's what happens in the future. We invite you all to work hard and be optimistic about your future. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome back. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Sylvester Inspires Belief Cast. Thank you once again for joining us. I Again, thank you to our sponsors, Siegfried and Jensen and Veracity Networks. Thank you so much for believing in me and supporting this cause. I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in week after week. We are trending on all platforms out there. We just... Um, hit over 135,000 downloads. It's really, it just blows my mind that that's where we're at. And it's because we bring on some amazing guests who are vulnerable and they share some powerful stories of overcoming, you know, tragedy, loss, addiction, and et cetera. Today's going to be no different. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited. I'm actually kind of starstruck here. We have Court McGee joining us today. Court, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah. So a little background on Court. Um, he's the season 11 Ultimate Fighter Champion. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who maybe do not know what that is, that is not some easy little task. They get a bunch of tough guys who've got backgrounds in fighting. They throw them into a house, and then you guys do this tournament, and you work your way up the ladder, fight your way through it, and you won that. Yep. That's impressive. Um, Court, but what's more impressive, though, I want people to know, you're 15 years clean and sober. Uh, congratulations on that. We were just talking about that off the air, and I just want you to know how much that inspires me. And uh, we're brothers in recovery for sure. And I know you're really passionate about what you do now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's my driving yeah. force in life. Yeah, uh, we were talking about you just had a baby boy, uh, yep. so now you have three boys. You're married. Um, you're the founder of the McGee Project, which I want to talk more about. Um, and you're using your second chance at life to bring hope to people who may be struggling with addiction. Again, we talked about you're a, you're a UFC fighter uh, by night, fisherman by day, husband and father, and, and long-term recovery. Always um, ha- uh, you have a, an inspiring story of drug use, overdose, death, and overcoming obstacles to be a better person, and you do it one day at a time. Again, thank you, Court, for spending some time with me today. My pleasure. Yeah. And I want to thank my wife, Chelsea, for writing that. Yeah, <laughs> Chelsea. Yeah. Shout out to Chelsea. Thank you for writing that. Um, I like I said, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Um, I've watched you fight. Um, you're amazing, honestly. Like you, you're a, you're just tough. Um, you're disciplined, and um, I know that you're a a big proponent on working hard. Whenever you put your mind to something, you're just this hard worker, and I think that's why you won season eleven Ultimate Fighter is because you outworked everybody. Yeah, that had, that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. So why don't we start, though? We'll get to that. Uh, okay. I'm kind of jumping ahead here because I want to talk about all that. But tell us a little bit about where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood. Okay, so I I was I was born in Ogden, Utah, um, and but I was raised in Layton, Utah. So okay. I was just born in a hospital in Ogden, um, St. <clears throat> Benedict's Hospital. But okay. I grew up in Layton, Utah, just off of Hill Air Force Base. And, um, I had a, I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, I have two parents that are very caring, um, uh, just like in service. Uh, my mom, she went back to school and became a nurse when I was in in like middle school. 
And then my dad, he worked on Hill Air Force Base. Uh, he went to college for one day and then hired oh, really? on at Hill Air Force Base <laughs> and was like, I'll do this for a couple of years till I figure it out. And yeah. then, you know, over 30 years later, really? he retired from Hill Air Force Base. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And um, that's awesome. What brought us to Utah was my, my grandfather. He was stationed in Mountain Home. He was a pilot and a lieutenant colonel. He used to fly uh kc-135 refuelers the mid-air refuelers like oh super really cool. yeah those yeah. are cool yeah and, and one of the people i look up to the most is bill mcgee william mcgee my my grandfather Your grandfather okay. and um he got stationed in mountain home and then after he retired uh he he uh started a touring business uh touring the hell's canyons with one of his co-pilots or okay. uh, an, another pilot it didn't work out and then he got an opportunity to hire on civil service at hill air force base and so he moved uh the family to to Layton, utah basically and so that's okay. where my dad gotcha. you know the first couple of years he was all over the place he was air force brat and uh his his two brothers and one sister and then they moved to Layton and started a, and had a little farm and then they were all from Marshall, Illinois, and we had a great big farm in Marshall, Illinois, we, nice. you know, a couple thousand acres. So that's where our family okay. roots came from. Beautiful. Um, but I, I had a wonderful upbringing. Um, my dad was always supportive. Uh -huh. um, my mom was always supportive. Um, no neglect, no abuse. Um, my dad's like a, he's a drinker, but he's not an alcoholic. Yeah. I mean me and my brother laugh. I have one older sibling, uh, 18 months older okay. named Chris. And, and we laugh like the drunkest we ever saw. Our dad one time was like, we came home at like 10 o'clock at night and he was sitting on the porch with a glass of water. And we were like, dad, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, I had one too many beers. <laughs> and then that was it. Right. And you that, know, so there, huh. there was no, yeah, it wasn't a, no violence. Okay. Yeah. My parents were very supportive. That's um, awesome. have been married for over 40 years and just, you know, as average as uh, upbringing as you could have. As you could have. Well, how are you as a kid? I mean, just curious. Were you a you know? I was pretty rambunctious. Yeah. You know, I was on on the go all the time. Um, I at about five or six years old, uh, I had I have three cousins, and we're about the same age. Um, one that's the same age as me, and then two that are a couple of years older. And we went to Lagoon, this amusement park. Um, in Farmington, Utah, and they're well traveled, um, but we necessarily we we weren't well traveled, and so my aunt and uncle had left us there for a couple hours with our older cousins to to you know enjoy the park, and I got separated from that group at about five or six years old, and I went and I hid behind a hot dog stand in between these garbage cans okay. and got separated from them. Oh, wow. And separated for several hours. Like, they had to have people come out and well, search for scary. me. Yeah. yeah, and so that created some separation anxiety and some issues later on. Okay. I remember I went to see some therapists uh, because, like, man, I was having night terrors. I would sure. stare out. I would, as a little kid, I would stare outside of my door and think somebody was going to come in for hours and not sleep very well. And just like really anxious. I was scared of crowds. I was scared when I went to school, like sometimes my stomach would hurt. Really? Wow. And, and, uh, one of those therapists had suggested maybe I had been molested. And to mm. my knowledge, I had not been molested. Right. You know, I just got separated and it was scary and I didn't know where to go. And, yeah, you know, and I, I have one vivid memory of being at uh, Walmart and 
you know, I got separated from my brother and my mom and dad and I ran out and just hugged my tire and they couldn't find me for like an hour. And I was out there just hugging my parents' tire. Cause you knew they six, had to come to the car eventually. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. And so I, I think like that was the first like little trauma I had. Okay. Um, but outside of that, like, man, I played outside. I, my dad would take us fishing. We, we hunted, uh, we, you know, we went deer hunting. Yeah. Um, we were outdoors and, there was a lot of work. So a lot of our family time together was helping neighbors in the yard, like maintaining our yard, like being of service to the four or five neighbors that we had growing up, going down to our farm, working on the farm. You know, okay. during the winter, we would cut and split wood and sell it. And, you know, that was for extra Christmas money. And, we, you know, and it's like, you know, we all had our own axe and you know we got to learn how to run a chainsaw at a young age and you know we would stack this wood and let it cure and sell it the next year to some friends that my dad had up the canyon and um so like a lot of the time growing up was spent family-wise was was spent surrounding work hard work showing up being active and being Mm -hmm. of service um and so it, it was it was great and to my knowledge, my first experience with alcohol was a little bit after that time, maybe eight or nine years old with those same cousins. My parents had had a liquor cabinet and okay. they would have, you know, get togethers, work parties, things like that. And um, and they were all cordial. They were all fun. Um, but one time me and my couple of cousins and my brother went downstairs and we snuck into the liquor cabinet. And this is my first recollection okay. of drinking. And what age and were you again? I was probably, I had to been under 10 years old. Okay. And so we, we pulled out this bottle and I remember it was peppermint schnapps and we all took a cap full of peppermint schnapps and then everybody went outside and they were all acting like they were dizzy and drunk, right. uh-huh. you know, and like, oh. <laughs> And I was like, hey, I got to go inside and go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And I snuck downstairs because I didn't feel what those guys were feeling. Yeah, I was like, like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like what they're feeling like. And so I went and I took capful after capful. And I don't know how much I had, but, right. you know, maybe, maybe a shot or two or something <laughs> like that. But enough for my oh, yeah. 50 pound little body to feel yeah. it. Right. <laughs> and so I ran outside after about 15 minutes and I was like, guys, I feel it, you know. <laughs> and to my recollection, I don't remember having consequences right you know i don't and i don't know if that stemmed or started my addiction but that was my first experience with alcohol right and there was always alcohol at my home but it was never okay for us to drink it right so if we were to sneak in you know later on in our in our teens if we were to sneak into dad's beer it's like we had to be pretty sneaky about yeah. it yeah. and we also had all these jugs of this tomato wine that my great aunt marge made <laughs> Yeah, and these gallon Tomato jugs, wine. we had like oh, twenty man. or thirty of them, and so when 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 the <laughs> right. drinking started, we would sneak into that, you really? know, about gag every time we took. Oh, I can really imagine it. how that tasted. Oh, oh yeah. man, <laughs> gives me the chills thinking. I haven't about heard it right that now. in a long time. Tomato wine. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, it sounds like though that you you were expected to work hard, and that's probably where you learned all that. Is you got you you just did a lot of work, yeah. and you were helping other people at the same time. Well, and another thing that happened that was that, I mean, obviously had a huge impact on my life was because of the fear and the issues that I was having at school and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like the fear of crowds and this anxiety, my parents decided to put me into martial arts. 
and they put me mm. and my brother and my dad also joined. Oh, so it was okay. like a family, yeah, family thing. thing. They put us into martial arts, and like obviously I took to that because what thirty years later I'm doing the Here same. Here you are, yeah. <laughs> I'm preparing for a fight right now, May twenty second. Really? You know? Yeah, and so know. it's kind of like that had a huge and profound impact on my life. Um, not only did it help with like it gave me courage, right? And I got in and I started doing this, this, you know, I love the sparring. Of yeah. course we did forms and like the katas and the one steps and all yeah. the traditional martial arts. Cause it was a traditional like Taekwondo type school okay. called okay. Chintoshi karate. Okay. But there was a few instructors, right? And one of them ran one of the longest running MMA shows in the history of Utah, this guy, Mike Stidham. And he yeah. was one of the Shintoshi Karate instructors. Now he wasn't at the facility I was at, but when we'd have tournaments and stuff with sparring and, and, yeah. and, and matches, my dad and him would hang out. There was a bar right next to his gym and you know, they would like, yeah. they would get a beer and they would hang out. And he was more of a kickboxer. He also was a wrestler. So he took, I think he took second in state at like 103, 112 pounds at West Jordan High School or something like that. So he yeah. had wrestled. I think he, it was Hillcrest High School. I actually, Hill, I actually yep. know of Mike. Okay. Yeah. Because back in the day, he was like, don't mess with Mike Stedham. Exactly. He's a badass. Stay he was away. a world class kickboxer yeah, at the he, time. I mean, he was a mean mother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he had a few people. He had, he had some boxers in his gym, some boxing yeah. trainers, you know, that was outside of the karate. Because the karate, I think, was his source of income. Right, sure. And then all that extra stuff was like, wow. And then that's about the time when no holds barred fighting came, mixed martial oh, right. arts. Okay. The UFC, Pride, all of those things like started coming in you know because that was i don't know it was in the 90s you yeah. know and mm -hmm. and um my fascination with that was was awesome but he had suggested to my dad maybe you should get him into wrestling and so i did a couple of seasons of like uh like latent city wrestling and okay. i just remembered like i wasn't supposed to get pinned i don't think i was very good but you know it's like <laughs> i had that experience and then yeah. when i went back to the karate school I realized, like, man, if I took these guys down, they couldn't do anything they to couldn't me. couldn't do it, And yeah. so I was fascinated with it. Okay. And right around that time, my brother uh, had bought me a book for one of my birthdays, and it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding. Okay. And I didn't care too much. I, I was a huge fan of Arnold because, yeah. you know, the Terminator, Terminator stuff. and yeah, yeah. for sure. And, um, <laughs> but I was interested in, to build, like in building a foundation for strength, and I – you know, after like skimming through it and, and I couldn't read very well, but I could, I could read and retain a little bit, right? Yeah. I could read and retain a little bit. And then I could look at the pictures of them doing the workouts and okay. then figure out, okay, like I got to build strength by doing deadlift and by doing squats and by doing bench and by, you know, and these are muscles that help this. And, right. you know, and it's like, and so there, there was, there's three books in that, but one of them was the, the, you know, building a base. And I remember, you know, like, uh, I remember like Arnold talking about how his calves were small in comparison to his whole body. And so he would do all this posing and all these competitions with his calves in the water calves. Cause he was embarrassed about how small his really? calves were. I didn't were. know that. Wow. And this was early on okay. in his career. And so he did the equivalent of 660 45 minute workouts on just his calves to get him built Jeez, wow. and i thought man that's the determination that's the yeah. dedication and so like i kind of put that into my life as mm. in 
well, I've got to start doing squats and start doing lunges and start building up my legs. So when yeah. I shoot on somebody, I can pick them up. And when yeah. I throw a kick or a punch, I, I'm a little bit stronger. Yeah. And that's where the strength started coming into it and, and okay. the mixing it. Now, the other thing is like, you know, I don't, I have a, a lot of memories, a lot of like friendships that I've had. I still uh, contact, you know, 10 or 15 of my friends that I went to elementary school with from my neighborhood that I grew up with. Right. There's four or five of them that I keep in contact. I call them on a regular occasion, see how they're doing, you know, talk about their kids, their marriage, yeah. and, you know, just like the, those things. I have those, you know, a couple of those friendships that have lasted, you know, oh, since, that's great. since yeah. grade school. That's awesome. But in middle school, it's kind of like things started to change a little bit. Um, you know, I I realized at about eighth grade that I had a challenge reading. Mm. And I remember from one experience that I had, there was this girl, her name was Polly Bono. And she was, she was really, really smart. And she sat next to me. And, and one time the teacher asked me to read and I got really nervous mm. and I started to read and I messed up every other word. And like, man, I ended up in tears wow. and she was like, court, I got it, you know, and yeah. she read it. And like, I'll never forget that. And I'm so thankful for her mm. doing that. But what I didn't realize, fast forward, like 16, 17 years, I found out that I'm like severely dyslexic and colorblind. And so and you my didn't know that then I didn't know that then really. And it's like, and I always made grades, right? Cheating mm -hmm. came in in my middle school, high right. school career mm -hmm. yeah. um, as needed uh, for me to get the grade so that my parents wouldn't look down on me right? so that yeah. I could possibly go to college after um, further my education, become an athlete, you know, at the mm -hmm. division one level or division two level. And so like that was my plan, but I didn't realize like, my reading comprehension was at like third or fourth grade. Really? And this is wow. after graduating high school. And I didn't, I didn't know. I just, I just thought like, man, I, I just have a really challenge. I have, a, I'm so challenged at reading. Um, but I couldn't let anybody know that. Like I wasn't mm. going to tell my parents that. Right. And I have talked to my dad about that. And he's like, man, I just thought you didn't like to read. Right. You know, and you know, like my ninth grade year, I was a four Oh student all four semesters. Wow. I, I got, I, you know, my first year of high school was a 4.0 student and I graduated as a commended graduate. So I had really? a, you know, a three, five cumulative GPA Man. or higher. Wow. And so it wasn't a lack of intelligence. It was a lack of ability to read, but I kept that inside and I didn't tell anybody that, you know, mm -hmm. I was like, Nope, nobody can know no that. No one's going to know that. Right. And I look back on it and it's kind of like, I was this scared little kid that got left at Lagoon <laughs> And now I found yeah. martial arts, I found weightlifting, and now wrestling. And so I'm going to become the baddest son of a bitch I know. Right. And then nobody can hurt me. And so I'm definitely not going to tell anybody I can't read. Right. right. That's the last thing you're going to say. Yeah. For so sure. Yeah. That's where the sarcasm, mm. the enthusiasm in class, talking out of turn, the bravado yeah. started to come in. Okay. Because it allowed me to feel safe. Yeah. You know, and... I found wrestling, like I didn't wrestle for those couple of years. And then in eighth grade, I had an English teacher um, and he was the wrestling coach. And he was like, I think you ought to come out for wrestling. And I'm like, shoot, did I miss last year? Yeah. And he's right. like, yeah, like I had no idea what was going on, <laughs> right. you know? And I told my parents I wanted to wrestle and they said, great. And so I got into wrestling 
and I'm, I I can't hardly remember much about it other than there right. was one or two kids that were a little bit better than me, and so I was my goal was to try and beat those guys by the end of the year. Right. And I did that in ninth grade too, and then wow. <clears throat> I had my first couple of situations where bullying came in. Mm. Now in this Shintoshi karate that I grew up in, it's always walk away, talk your way out of it, talk your way. And then if they cross the line, then you can defend yourself. Right. Okay. But I was nervous about getting beat up because everybody knew I did karate. And I'm like, man, if I go get beat up, then they're going to think this karate's BS. Yeah. Right? right. And at that time, like looking back on it, like I was pretty tough for like a 12, 13, 14 year old kid. Sure. Like tougher than your average. Right. Um, and yeah. I had had that experience, you know, at that time I'd went to these tournaments, Mike Stidham introduced me to this guy named Mike Colby, who was a Walt Bayless black belt in jujitsu. Mm. Um, and I had done jujitsu. I'd learned some Kimuras. I'd learned some key locks. I learned rear naked chokes like, and I had trained that stuff and, and, and worked. And then I had done some kickboxing stuff and I had started mess. I bought some boxing gloves and man, I started learning how to work the bag. Wow, this okay. guy, he held the mitts for me one time that I remember. And you know, it's like, plus I was doing karate two or three times a week. And then now in high school, I did, you know, or junior high, I did all those. Yeah. So I was like pretty tough. And yeah, right. I got to a point where like, I had a couple of people, one interaction where there's a kid from my neighborhood who was severely handicapped. You know, he was in the special education yeah. um, and he was getting picked on. Um, these, these, these kids were calling him a name. They were pretending that they were pieces of fruit and he was, I'm going to eat you, you know? <laughs> right. And this kid is like the sweetest kid. And he grew up in my neighborhood and I, and he, he got picked on and I don't even think he knew he was getting picked on, but these guys were like hitting him in the head. Oh, wow. They were pushing him. They were oh, like, you know, and then one of right. them tripped him and I lost my shit. And so right. I, yeah, I, I mean, like. I had only been in a few little things here and there in elementary school. Right. But this time it was a fight and I I I beat the shit out of like three of these kids. I punched them in the stomach, I kicked their legs. Really? Yeah, like I They didn't I, know what was I didn't punch any of them in the face right. because I was like at least that shows control. But I punched them in the body and I was like I was kicking their legs and like they had no idea what was going yeah, they're on. Like, I was what shooting is going on them and right, taking them yeah. down. And it was right at the end of school, and I ended up getting uh, in trouble for it. And my dad was called. He had to come. He had to leave work. And I remember he was really frustrated. And then when he right. heard the situation, like, he, he like, <laughs> he's got this belly laugh. And, like, the, you know, he's like, it's just uh, he did this and he did this, you know, and these three kids. And, you know, it's like. I don't want to say it was unwarranted, but somebody needed to do something. Right. Like they were literally bullying on a handicapped kid. Right. And, and yeah, so that's not good. I lost it. Sure. And I sat in that office and, you know, they were, they, they told me what my consequences were. And then, you know, basically like my dad was like, huh, okay. You know, when we left, he didn't <laughs> yeah. say anything about it. And yeah. then that was it. And then I had one other time where I got into an altercation in the gym, in the gym room. I was doing, uh, pull-ups trying to beat the pull-up record and this right. kid pulled my pants down and everybody laughed and uh after it was over i was like really upset and sure. i'm like what the hell dude and um yeah. they kind of circled around me and then i ended up i ended up hurting a couple of those kids too and then after that i had no nothing like my ninth grade nothing. year was just man i focused on wrestling i focused on right. school That's i realized awesome. i could do really good mm -hmm. um but then i go to high school and 
I decided I wasn't going to get picked on at all. And like the third day of high school, my opportunity arose. And um, this, this, uh, this, this kid, they were making fun of the teacher. And then I answered a question and they called me a brown noser. Um, and then after class, I was like, Hey man, I don't know you. You don't know me. What's your problem? And he's like, man, you don't know who I am. And yeah, you know, and he like, he like nudged into me with his shoulder and I was like, dude, don't touch me. And he's like, what like this? And I was like, dude, I'm giving you your last warning. If you touch me again, I'm going to hurt you. And he went to push me and I like, I punched him in the throat. I like, I took him down. I got him in a rear naked choke and choked him unconscious, rolled him (laughs) off my leg, made sure his head didn't hit the floor. Right. And then stood up. And then after that, like. It was kind of like I had that target on my back. Like I got, like I choked a kid out unconscious the third day of high school. So it was like, it was not good. Right, Um, right. (laughs) And it put a lot of pressure on my back because there was a lot of people that, you know, were upset with that, his friends. And then, you know, some of the more popular kids, like they, you know, he he had an older brother that was like pretty popular and it was just, it was not good. and so it caused a lot of extra contention and I felt justified at the time, you know, I, right. I could have walked away, but man, those past, ex- man, you get bullied, you know? Yeah. It's hard to like, walk away from go those look things. at the yeah. suicide rates for you sure. Know? It's like, it's no joke, it's you know, and no it's no joke. And yeah, granted I wasn't scared for my life, but I knew people were laughing at me because of his comment. I knew mm-hmm. he, you know, he dressed nicer than me. I knew, you know, and, and I was yeah, just like, some... I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take this. Yeah. Um, but restraint of tongue and at, you know, I only had a couple more altercations after that. And then it was like, Hey man, you're going to be expelled from school if any of this happens anymore. And I was scared to death because I started wrestling my sophomore year, uh, at that high school. And I knew that was the route I needed to take at that time. I believe the ultimate fighter one came on and Forrest Griffin, Stefan Bonner happened. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Really? Yep. I saw it. I saw the finish. I saw the fight and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. No way. Not to mention like one of the people I idolized was Randy Couture and Matt Hughes. And Matt Hughes was from Illinois. So I knew he was pretty close to my family farm. Mm -hmm. And like Randy Couture had this, I mean, incredible, uh, uh, pedigree in wrestling. Yeah. And I was just like, man, what I got to do is focus on my wrestling. And then if I can make it to college and yeah. wrestle as a division one act, cause a lot of these guys are all Americans and I didn't know what that was. I didn't, I, I was just like, whatever. Okay. This right. is what I got to do. Yeah. And I said, if, if I can, if I can wrestle at least in high school and, and, and do my best, like it'll, 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 It'll help me become a professional athlete in mixed martial arts because that's what I'm yeah. going to do. Are you still doing the taekwondo and all that stuff? So I or? backed off at about 15 years okay. old. So then you're just focused 100% on wrestling at this point. 100% on wrestling, okay. yep. And yeah. then right around that time, there was a few gyms that had opened uh, in the early 2000s that were teaching jiu-jitsu. Okay. Pedro Sauer in the late 80s, early 90s moved to Provo City, Utah. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but like, Jiu-Jitsu started in Provo, Utah, before most states in the whole country. Really? Right? You have Southern California, Gracie, right? Gracie, yep. And it's kind of like Provo, Utah had Pedro Sauer. So all of a sudden, you had this lineage of quite a few guys that had, like, 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 
incredible black belts and instructors. Yeah. And so you had this little group of people that started moving around. Mm. And so a few gyms had opened. A few people had come to like high schools to promote their right. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I'm like, that's what I got to do. You're like, I'm doing that. You know, as soon as wrestling's <laughs> over, I got to go. Yeah. You know, and I, I went to a few of those places and, and did some stuff. But I knew my focus needed to be on wrestling. And, you know, it's like high school some incredible things happened, like not getting bullied. Right. I decided right. I wasn't going to get bullied right. and I knew I needed to achieve the grades to get to college. Plus to satisfy my parents because you know, they were really, they, they were really enthusiastic when I would come home with A's. Yeah. So no matter what I had to get A's, if I had to cheat, I would get A's and more than most alcoholics lead a double life. Yeah. And that was my double life. See, I, I knew I didn't deserve the credit I was getting, and that was weighing on me. Yeah. Right? Athletically, I was still improving, but I still didn't know what route I was going to take. Like, there was no, mm -hmm. hey, if you go do this and do this. I just had something in my mind. Yeah. You know, weightlifting. And then you've got friendships and all those things that happen in your life in, in yeah, you know, right. f like 14 to 18 years old. Like, it's the most influential time of, sure. of most yeah. people's life. Absolutely. And, and, those friendships, you know, start to change. You start to hang with people. My brother had a, you know, he's 18 months older, so he's a couple of grades ahead. He had some friends. There was drinking. There was partying. Right. And that started to play a bigger role. During the summer, I hired on my first, like, real job was on Hill Air Force Base doing landscaping. Okay. So during the summer, I was working 40-hour work weeks. Wow. You know, I was making good. I started out at, like, nine fifty nine an hour, and I was yeah. making good money. I'd get a paycheck, and I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> like, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, bought my first vehicle. Yeah. You know, it was a 83 Ford Bronco, you know, and it was like, it was great. And, like, I, I could... I could pay my way and I could do stuff and like I would work after school all the way until the wrestling season. Then I would shut it off and I would focus on wrestling. And, and by the time my junior year, I placed in the five, a state division, you know, I'd won a couple or I'd placed in a couple of pretty good sized tournaments. And I knew like, Oh man, this is, this is what, you know, right. senior year comes around. Uh, it was the same thing. I was on that path. You know, I, I, I had that, I had that, that, you know, that mindset of yeah. man. Okay. This is what I'm going to do. Now, something really important happened right before I started high school or right when I started high school. We went to this little football game, and I was with a group of my friends, and they had a group of friends. And I was introduced to this girl, Chelsea Eckersley. And she was like the prettiest girl. And mm -hmm. I just was like, oh, my gosh, I really <laughs> like her. Right? right yeah. And so, and this is how I say it now. And, and um, it's it, like I, I fell in love. Yeah. And I just knew it. You know, right, right. Uh, who knows if that's true or not or whatever. But uh, 22 years later, we're 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 here. Right. Here you are. Yeah. And so it's kind that's of like awesome. uh, um, that started to blossom. We really enjoyed each other's company. We did a lot together. Um, it separated me from some of the friends that I had, right. you know, that relationship yeah. stuff. Um, but. You know, it's like that was a that was a pretty, like, pretty pretty big moment in my high school career. That you know, I I found that found this girl. You know, yeah, so right. I chased after. Oh yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> um, that's amazing. You know, uh, it's funny, not funny, but you know, I always view these UFC fighters like they're just you know they don't they're not afraid of anything this and that, 
and to hear what you went through as a as a kid when you got left and lost for for a few hours or whatever mm-hmm. that was, and how that was, you know, it just makes me realize you're a human being, yeah, just like everybody else, and and ultimately, you know, all these things put into place because you wanted to one go to college, but more importantly, you didn't want to get bullied. You didn't want to go through any of that stuff. Plus, you wanted to stick up for other people as well. And it's just interesting how that all kind of plays out, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a question. And, I, man, I've got a million questions. I, 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 I'll get to that in a minute. I'm sorry because I don't. that'll take us in a different direction. So were you drinking all through high school through this whole thing as well? Yes. So Because it started at 10. You started having those you know shots at 10. Mm-hmm. So by high school, are you like full blown into it at this point or? So in high school, drinking took a bigger role on the weekends, okay. right? Um, mainly during the summer. So when I left school for the summer, like I, 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 we would drink on the weekends and we have, uh, we have property in Lava Hot Springs, Idaho. So we'd go up there and okay. we'd, we'd sneak beer. Sometimes we would, you know, my brother was 16, 17 at the time. We would go down and we'd find somebody to buy us beer and- from my first experience, I drank alcoholically. Like I, okay. I, I, I drank to get for effect right, right off the bat. Yeah, and it did play a bigger role, and it did change. Um, also, there was a few. It's my brother had a friend, and and um, we became close friends. And his older brother was uh, kind of a pot dealer, right? And so he was he was he was buying and selling pot, and so I started. I started buying pot from him okay. and I, and I realized early on, like, you know, and this is like 15, 16, 17. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't like the effect pot gave me. I, I got super anxious. I was nervous. Right. You know, neither of my, my mom would smoke cigarettes off and on over the years, right. but like our house was really clean. So like I couldn't come in smelling like smoke without getting questioned. <laughs> right. Like there was, and my yeah. dad is not, he, like he would always say, like I always figured I got gotten enough trouble drinking beer, so I never, you know, I never got into smoking pot. Right. You know, but I could sure roll a joint, you know, and like, <laughs> and it was so like yeah. he was always kind of lighthearted. Sure. You know, but um, there was no messing around when it came came yeah, to drugs that, in our yeah. house, you know, right. and it and I think he knew too that we were sneaking in and we were drinking, and he would just always he he would discourage it, and he would say, man, you know, you can't be driving, you can't, you know. And it's like, right. you know, um, but he never condoned us drinking at home or drinking around him. Like he never gave us a beer and was like, right. you can drink just as you stay home. Yeah. It was a, it was a no, no. Right. But you know, I think he knew we were out drinking. Sure. I, I wouldn't lie to him. Um, but I did lie to him about this. Well, I didn't tell him that I was smoking pot. Right. And so I started smoking pot, but I didn't like the effect, but those same kids that picked on me in high school, or not picked on me, but the, that, that that same crew of people that I didn't get along with, yeah. and the same kids that did bully me in junior high, I started selling pot to. And so mm, all of a sudden I had a little bit of power over them. Now I was the yeah. cool guy. Wow. And I was pinching their sack and, you know, mm-hmm. and like uh, charging yeah. them a little bit more than I should have sure, been. Yeah, right? right. And it gave me power. And now all of a sudden I became a drug dealer, right? And it's kind of like, that gave me power, and I didn't hardly make any money off of it. But right, you know, selling like twenty or thirty or fifty dollars sacks of weed, and right. you know this, and 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 you know, having to hide it, and 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 
you know, I think my junior year in high school, I got my first DUI. And it was during the summer. We'd had a big party mm. up in this canyon. Um, I drank. I didn't drive that night. But in the morning, I was still drunk. I stayed up. I, cl- I cleaned up everything. And I had all the beer cans and all the garbage. And I had them in right. sacks. And I was driving my Jeep down the canyon. And I got pulled over for doing six over. Really? <laughs> yeah, in a small, <laughs> super small town. Right. And uh, they smelt the alcohol, you know, and, man, they made a spectacle of it. Like, they got me out. They breathalyzed me. And I'm like, I haven't had anything to drink today. And he's like, you smell like alcohol. And I drank the night before, but I told him I didn't have any. I didn't have anything right, today. Nothing today, yeah. But I was underage, and then they had like you know four sacks of beer cans and liquor bottles, wow. and man, they they spread it all over the highway and had me out there, you know. And people and are driving by. People are driving this. by. Yep. And yeah. so, and I got arrested for a DUI, and yeah. uh, it was it was really traumatic. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, it cost me several thousand. So. My whole summer of work, you know, those four or five thousand dollars that I made that summer went all to pay lawyer fines, court fees, and restitution, which ended up being, you know, probably five or six thousand dollars. It's it's more now, but right at the time, at the time, you know, that's the, what it was. The fines wow. and restitution, all court that fee. hard work. Yep, and I lost my license for like ninety days, and so getting to and from places was really hard, and so it's kind of like the the consequences started to get a little bit worse. Yeah, and and I. Looking back on it, I know it was all a direct result of my drinking and using. Now, one thing that happened, I I, I did really well my senior year in high school, right? Uh, right? I only lost to a couple of kids the whole year. I ended up, oh. you know, taking third um, in the 5A division. I lost to one kid six times, and then I lost to a kid that I beat my whole career. Um, wow. I'd won, uh, like, a, a, a high school, a big high school tournament. Right. Um, like you know i i knew and, and my coach and a few of my teammates were like man you're the one that's going to go on to college and and wrestle like you can do it and i knew i was on that that trajectory right and for me my parents always said like you know hey there's money set aside yeah. if you want to go to college after go to college did you know get a degree and then yeah. you know we'll help you as long as you're you're helping yourself and you're working you can live with us you know as long as you're going to school full time and you're still maintaining, you know, a part-time job at least. Yeah. And, um, which is, which was great of them. For sure. And then they said, well, if not, then you got to find a job and you got to go to work and that's what you, you know, and then that's what yeah. you're going to do. So those well, were my two routes. Yeah. And at the time my mom had just went through college, but before that my dad had one day of college and you look at the statistics of, of families where parents didn't go to college their kids end up not going to college, right. right? Yeah. And so I I was really like conflicted because I didn't know if I was supposed to go to college or not. My brother ended up going to college and and he graduated with like the lowest GPA you could graduate with in high school. And then I he's getting his MBA right now. Oh like wow. The, the dude That's has cool. like four college degrees. <laughs> and so That's it's awesome. like, like, you know, and, like, whoa. and so I followed him yeah. to Weber State. I was like, okay, I'll just go there. Yeah. But the heartbreaking news was I had lost my scholarship because of Title IX, yeah. women's and men's fairness in sports. And for me, I, I wanted to go to college to get an education in wrestling so I could become a professional athlete in, in right. mixed martial arts. Right. And when I lost that opportunity, I was devastated and mad at the world. Now, at the time, I was drinking quite a bit, right. you know, every weekend. Um, sure. But the loss of that scholarship had heightened yeah. that. 
because now I wasn't going to be wrestling. And in the state of Utah in 2003, there was no colleges wrestling. There was clubs at a couple of different schools, right, but, but BYU had quit their program. There was no other colleges wrestling. So there was no no college wrestling in wow. Utah except for a club. And I you know, I was I was hurt. Um you know, the only thing I kind of had left was like, okay, well, I've got my girlfriend, you know, yeah. but there was, uh, yeah. we, we were conflicted too, because she grew up in an LDS family. Her fa family's all LDS. Oh, okay. And, uh, I didn't grow up in a specific religion. I had family that was Baptist, but, and we would go to Baptist sermon. Sometimes I'd go with my friends to, right. you know, uh, the church, the LDS church. Mm -hmm. Um, but we didn't grow up with that. And we had a belief, you know, I had a belief of a higher power. You know, we'd say grace at dinner. We would say prayers sure. at night. You know, it was like, uh, you know, loose Christian principles, a uh, great home. And it's like when that happened, I, I, I lost that. I lost my direction. And I was like, well, I'll just follow my brother and I'll just go to Weber State. Just go there. Right? Yeah, right. And right before that. I went over to my girlfriend's house at like two or three in the morning. This is after high school, after graduation. And I was riding a go-ped uh, because I had been drinking. I'd went to a party. I'd been drinking. And I was like, well, if I ride a go-ped, I won't get a DUI, right? Right. And so it was just this little motorized scooter. Yeah. Well, they'd resurfaced this this uh, this road, this back road. And she was only a couple miles from my house. So I'm driving, you know, in the middle of the night. And I caught the tire on the, on the like, in the in the gutter there was a lip that was about oh, an inch wow. difference and so i caught that lip fell hit my collarbone Ooh. hit my head got knocked out shattered my collarbone and just was knocked unconscious rolled up on this fence and her house like thank goodness was right behind this this small maybe half acre field mm -hmm. and my, i had a little flip phone right yeah. and my flip phone had fallen out of my pocket and <laughs> oh, was blinking no. Oh, really? And so she was waiting for me to show up, and she saw this blinking light. So she no like way. she she walked across the really? field, and she found me piled up, bloody, on the ground. And she was like, oh, my gosh, and, like, grabbed her car, called my parents. Right. Ended up taking me to the emergency room, and I had shattered my collarbone. And, I mean, it, they put me in a little iron bra, and, I mean, it was miserable. I was in so much pain. Oh, my And gosh. at the time, I had not had experiences with prescription pain medication other than, you know, yeah. uh you know, maybe, maybe getting something if I, if I got stitches or something, but I didn't right. have any recollection of that. And sure. at the time, like I had friends who were abusing Adderall. I had friends that were, you know, like there's a few, you know, a few of the guys smoking pot, a few, few doing a little bit of cocaine here and there, but like, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't ready to that. Like I, right, I yeah. had, you know, I had experienced a little bit um, but, but, but nothing, nothing like that. I hadn't made that step, but I was drinking alcoholically and I'd already had some consequences. Right. And I wow. just, yeah, it's just, Man. and so that happened. They prescribed me a buttload of pain pills, uh, Oxycontin, 10 milligram Oxycontin, and then Percocet, which is both oxycodone, which right. thinking back on that, I'm like, what the <laughs> heck, man? What's going on? But here? they gave me 10 milligram Oxycontin. I was supposed to take two, Right every four to six hours right. and then one 10 milligram oxycotton which is just straight oxycodone right. every 12 hours and so i was taking those pills um you know i i had school i had already started college i took a ton of classes like 20 credit hours and 
I was so overwhelmed and so messed up that I was like, I can't do this. So I dropped out of a whole bunch of them, took bare minimum, like maybe right. six credits or nine credits, really? right? Okay. And the whole time I was taking pills and I found out about two or three weeks later that they needed to go in. I had a second opinion because it was in so much pain that they had to go in and fix it. So they ended up going in and doing, uh, man, they had to... I, they had to do reconstructive, reconstructive surgery on my collarbone. The whole thing. Took wow. out like 70 bone fragments, put a plate, all these eight screws, all this stuff. And so I got loaded up on pain pills again. Again, yeah. And Man. the drinking took a bigger role. Plus, one of my close friends at the time, he was working at Smith's. And after yeah. hours, he would sneak. He would uh, like like get somebody to buy beer and then sneak it out the back. And, like, uh, and so we had like... Yeah. easy access to beer so right. the drinking and the pain pills and then one of the kids that i grew up with this kid cody he was like hey man i'll give you 10 bucks a piece for those oxycontin tens and i was like what you're like and this is how i know i'm a drug addict right <laughs> instead of saying okay well i got 30 of them that's 300 bucks yeah shoot man i don't need these i got these other these, right. these percocet you know and they're, they're taking care of the pain right i was like man they must be good and I was like, what do you do with them? He said, I suck off the coating, crush it up, and snort it. And I had never really snorted anything. I wasn't the kid that snorted pixie sticks when I grew up. Right. You know, and I was yeah. just like, man, I don't, yeah. I kind of, I was uneasy about it, but I was like, I'll try it one time. Yeah. And if I don't like it, I won't do it again. I'm done, right. And I crushed that pill up. I, I sucked off the coating, crushed up that pill, looked at myself in the mirror, went down, snorted it, and it burnt, and I didn't get high. And I lied to myself. Because I walked back to my room and grabbed one more. And I said, mm. I'm going to try it one more time. Wow. I sucked the coating off, crushed it up, snorted it, and it hit me like a million bucks. Wow. All of a sudden, it didn't matter to me that I wasn't in college wrestling. Right? Um, right? My relationship with my girlfriend was starting to get on the rocks because, you know, I had another arrest. I had another arrest. I had another I got in trouble. Yeah, I just, dropped out of all my classes. You know, yeah. I was not making the grades. And then I hired on at a job that I was like, I hired on a Sam's Club working overnight. Yeah. Plus, you're not doing your passion of not wrestling. Not doing my passion. Like, I was not motivated. Nothing. Yeah. Drinking almost daily, you know, it, even if it was just a little bit or right. a lot, mm -hmm. you know, and then now snorting these pain pills, you know, and that, that to me was like, a, it was a big thing because. Now you couldn't smell the alcohol. My dad, you know, at the time, he's like, "Man, son, you know, you gotta, you gotta quit this drinking. You smell like, you know, you right. smell like booze." And I was working overnights, so on uh, the night that I had off, I'd stay up all night and drink. And so in the morning when I'd go to work, or at night when I'd go to work, my, you know, because I had lost my, lost my license right. again for my second DUI, he was like, "Man, you gotta quit. You gotta quit this drinking." Yeah, you know. And so when I found the Oxycontin and I started snorting it, I could attain a high and nobody could smell it. And I thought nobody could see it, but of right. course they could. For sure, yeah. You know, yeah. Babbling and yeah. cotton mouth. And, and I just, so, you know, I thought I had found it. And within, it's like you fast forward a year mm -hmm. from when that happened. I completely completely got rid of all the people I was hanging out with and I was just hanging out with Brady and Cody the two kids that I grew up with both kids that um you know the one we first experimented and one of them got into an accident he got hooked on the pain pills and he was the one that tried to buy my pain pills right 
Um, and then the other kid, he had kind of got into steroids and he had a prescription for Xanax because he had anxiety. Okay. But at the time he's already starting to abuse it. And so this circle of, of, of three of us were kind of the last friends that I had. And the only people I had connections with other than people I was buying and selling drugs with. And I, right before getting fired, I lost a job. Me and Chelsea were on the rocks. She was like, man, this is this is not going to work. Right. I couldn't hold on to a job. I knew college wasn't for me, so I dropped out of college. Um, after, after that year, I dropped out. Um, and I was just like, I, at a year, I was like, man, I have a problem. I need to stop, and I don't know how. Wow. And I thought something big happened. I... I hired on at a landscaping company. One of the guys introduced me to the superintendent of this uh, excavation company. And he was like, man, yeah, we would love to have you. You know, we come interview. And like, so I went to an interview. I talked to him and he said, okay, the only thing I need you to do is, is you need to give me a clean piss test, a clean UA. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I can do that. So I called my parents and I was like, hey, mom, dad, because I'd, I'd kind of been kicked out of the house by then. Right. And I was like, I need to come stay. I, I got to get, I got to get clean. Um, I got to quit drinking. And so I went and basically I detoxed off of like 300 wow. milligrams of Oxycontin a day. Dang. Um, it's by that time I had dangerous. experimented with <laughs> cocaine. I had used mm -hmm. cocaine, but I wasn't using cocaine to party. I was using cocaine as my coffee in the morning to get up and, and, and go to work Have some, yeah. and, and work at the landscaping, wow. you know? And then at night I was buying Xanax off the Brady kid so that I could go to sleep. You know, I was buying the Xanax so I could go to sleep because on occasion, I would smoke pot to try and go to sleep, but man, I mm -hmm. get so paranoid, and it is, you know, it's like I wasn't, I wasn't using or drinking to, 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 to relax. I was using or drinking to function, and right. it didn't matter what it was. I was using it to help me do the next thing, right. help me do the next thing, and right. that's what my whole life. So, girlfriend aside, college aside, work aside, it was like find the next drug, and you got to do some pretty shady shit to keep to keep living like Absolutely. that. And, and I was dying inside because yeah. I had lost all hope. Yeah. And I was, I was 20 years old, you know, 19 years old. And, and I was just, I was so miserable. And my brother, man, he came, he quit bailing me out after. So beings were, were in Utah, right. me, me and Joseph Smith have something in common. Okay. We were both arrested 41 times. <laughs> right. <laughs> so okay in that in that two-year period 41 wow. i got arrested 41 times um and the consequences are that our lawyer fees court fines restitution right. piss test i mean every little thing all of that yeah. you know probation um yeah. and so that you add all that onto it and then trying to maintain <clears throat> drinking and using without getting caught and, and um I hit my low point. And I was like, I got to get sober. I got to do whatever I can to get sober. And so I, I begged my parents to let me come stay. I stayed at their house. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I went cold turkey on everything. And it was the worst to oh. this day, even after the overdose and the death, right. it was the worst detox I've ever been through. Cold sweat, shivers. And I'm talking like, like 60 hours of that, just Ugh. rough. And Man. I was pounding water, but oh. I showed up to that interview. I nailed the interview. I got the job and I started and, and, and from memory, like four or five days in, they put me on this job and we were, I think we we're at Utah state and there was some sandstone and they needed me to jackhammer through it. 
and I ran this jackhammer for like 12 hours. I didn't take breaks <laughs> other than a few drinks. And I felt like I did when I knew I was going to be a Division One All-American. Right. When I had first found that Arnold Schwarzenegger book, when I had first found jiu-jitsu, when I first got those wow. boxing gloves, like I was like, this yeah. is it. And after that day of work, that superintendent came up to me and he said, Court, if you work like this, you will go places in this company. And he's like, you know this guy over here? We just put him through surveying school. He makes six figures a year. And he said, you can go places in this company. And when I left and I got in that Jeep and and, and I yeah. sat there and I went, this is it. This is what my dad was talking about. College didn't work for me. Wrestling right. didn't work for me. You know what? The MMA stuff, whatever. It's done. Um, at the time, like me and Chelsea were on the rocks. She was kind right. of my last thing. Yeah, right. And then a few days later... She came in when I was kind of like, you know, like kind of on this, like, wow, you know, I got, and it's like, she, uh, he said, you're going places. And I thought, okay, I have direction now. This is what I'm going to do. I have a career now. And then about two weeks later, two weeks and one day. So like 15 days later, I got right. a call from Brady and he was one of the two friends yeah. and he said, court. My girlfriend just had a baby and I have some Percocet. Do you want them? And I said, no. I said, dude, I'm completely sober. And I just got a raise. I was making like 16, 17 bucks an hour. Right. I was working like 80 hours a week, you know, probably making like five, six, 700 bucks a week. And I was just like, this is right. it, man. This is good. I'm, yeah. I, I have a path now. Yeah. And I could work hard and I wanted to be there and I was interested in it. Yeah. And I just thought, uh, no, man, I can't. Dude, I'm completely sober. Now, looking back on that, I didn't I didn't have recovery. I had complete abstinence. Right. But I didn't have a plan. I didn't yeah, have a game nothing. plan. Yeah. I didn't know there was people in long-term recovery, millions of them, 30, 40 million of them in the United States. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't have a group. I didn't have a church. I had my family, but I had alienated myself from almost everybody so it was almost like i was alone but i had hope right within wow. a day when i got off work at five or six o'clock i called brady and in my mind i said i'm gonna take two pain pills and that's it just two it's amazing and i went over to his house and i took two and i went back and i bought the rest of the bottle within a week I was calling into work. I was loaded on the job. I was leaving leaving the job yeah. to snort pain pills. Right. And I had a couple of thousand dollars in my bank. And so I was uh I was still underage. I was still 20, so I wasn't able to buy alcohol, but I'd get the temporary hire guys and I would take them to lunch and I would say, "Hey, can we stop at the liquor store? I'll buy you a little bit if you buy me." Right. And I got, I bought too much at first, and then I started buying a pint. So I would just have a couple of shots to get rid of the shakes in the morning. As soon as I got home, one of the neighbors in the little apartment I had, I would have him buy me an 18 pack. Jeez. I would drink 16 and leave two for the morning, so I could, I could just down them down when I got up to help go. get yeah. get rid of the shakes. The shakes, yeah. And then if if I if I had a little bit of cocaine, I would do a little bit of cocaine, or if I had a little bit of meth, I'd do a little bit of meth. And then I would go to work and I would try to like, okay, I got to wash my face, got to you know try to eat a little bit or gag some food down and then wow. my girlfriend i feel like she was the last person i had that like i could give her my pity you know like poor me story right yeah and it was this high and then all of a sudden a low and 
she uh, she got an opportunity to go to Russia and teach English. So she she left me, right? And she really left. Like she went to Russia. Like I'm out. <laughs> she left, left, and it and it it, yeah. it was. I didn't have and uh, so that's like the last thing. That's it's gone because yep. you lost wrestling, everything, MMA, whatever everything. that wherever that was gonna go. And now, the addiction took over wow. tenfold. Um, I'd never been fired from a job, and I'm not sure how long. It was a couple of months that I worked there, you know, four or five months or something, and I stayed up this this you know two or three days it was like a you know a saturday night i didn't go into work and i was supposed to but i called it off i just i just got loaded all day and tried to you know tried to find more and did this mm -hmm. and then pretty soon like i'd got a little bit more cocaine than i than i had thought that i'd had and i couldn't say and so i ended up doing too much and pretty soon it was like four o'clock in the morning and i had to be to work at like you know five o'clock in the morning and mm -hmm. i was just like and I was one of those guys that had to have sleep, you know, and I I left, I got in my Jeep, um, I made it to, you know, about 30 miles to the job site. And right before I got to the job site, I called the boss and I made up this stupid story. I was like, dude, I witnessed a robbery last night at this gas. <laughs> I mean, I made this bullshit story up, right? And I know he would like thinking... I would love to talk to him now. I don't even know if he remembers it or not, but I know he would He would just be like, That's what funny. in the hell? Yeah, I was like, I wouldn't, you know, nice and the story, cops kept yeah. me up, and I had, you know, and I had to identify this guy and and, and all this shit. And he's like, okay, man, go go home and get some sleep. You know, and I pulled off, and I, and I, and I, I almost got <laughs> to my house, and I ran a red light, and oh, I got into man. an accident. Had it have been a second earlier, I might have killed somebody. So I ran this red light and this girl hit the right rear of my Jeep, just barely nicked me enough to, and, and there wasn't significant damage to her, her vehicle, right. like a little bit of bumper damage, right. but it just nicked me enough to roll my Jeep. And I slid about 600 feet on the roof. I had like burns on the side of my face from the, Man. from the, right. the roof. Uh, it was like sparking and yeah. just and the heat it, and of the caught, friction caught my that. hair yeah. on fire Man. and like I folded my steering almost broke my steering wheel off just like keeping my head away from yeah. the concrete kicked it I got out sobered up super quick man went to the hospital um yeah totaled my vehicle um and I didn't get caught um my parents had asked if they could do a drug screen. They were like, "Can you can you test him for drugs? Like to see what he has? You know, still he's on our insurance. Right. You know, he doesn't live sure, with us, yeah. but you know." And they did it, and because of HIPAA, the police couldn't take 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 the 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 drug test. Right. But I tested positive for about everything. Man. Um, and. I showed up to that job like two days later and had to beg my dad to give me a ride. And I told him I might have had a problem with alcohol. And they said, well, we don't have room for you here. But if you get sober, we would love to have you back. Yeah. And so this is the first time I got fired. And like I, two or three days later, I was with that friend and he was shooting up heroin. And I didn't go that route. But at that time, I was like, you know what? I want to give it a try. And I remember he wrapped up Man. my arm, 
you know, he, he fixed me up just a tiny little bit of this black tar heroin, you know, cooked it up in the spoon, did the little, you know, and then, uh, went down and I remember the vein I went in and I, I, I put it in and I, I shot up and it, it went in my arm and it went in my body. And I remember like my head rolled back and two tears rolled out of my eyes and I felt them here, hit my earlobes and I went, Oh, all my problems went away. The girlfriend, the job, the I just nothing mattered. And I thought, as long as I can have this, everything will be fine. And I don't know how long it was later, but man, that is crazy. I was home. I got kicked out of the place I was in. I was homeless for maybe three to four weeks. I begged a cousin of mine to help me move in. My dad really like pushed for her to let me move into this trailer. Um, she had had a meth problem, but she was sober at the time. And so there was no drugs allowed. Right. Um, and I promised through my teeth that I wasn't using. Of course I was by that time, a couple of weeks into it. I mean, it went from shooting up that once to like within a week I was shooting up 30 or 40 times a day. Jeez. And obviously I had to find a job because I didn't have anybody to support me. Right. Yeah. And so I found somebody that I grew up with and got, got hooked up with a landscaping job. And I was showing up, you know, like falling asleep and nodding off and like trying to just do it just enough to, to, to get, get the shakes away. Yeah, and, right. You know, um, I don't yeah. remember how long I worked for him for, but September 9th rolled around 2005. It was a Sunday night. There was nobody allowed in the trailer. Um, and there was a girl that was there and, uh, I don't remember her. I don't remember where I met her, but I had had a girl over to, to visit. Right. And, um, she didn't know I was using heroin and, you know, my mom was a nurse. And so I was shooting up in a bunch of different places, shooting up in my legs, shooting up, you know, in my right. hands so that yeah. I didn't have track marks. Cause I knew my family would know my dad noticed that. Yeah. He's he uh, he'd been donating blood for years. As a matter of fact, I think he's the second largest donator in the history of blood donation with over 60 gallons of, of blood. <laughs> right. And so they know all about. Yeah, they would spot the track marks. For sure. And so I thought I was being pretty clever. Um, I went into the bathroom. I mixed up enough to where I had enough for for work the next day. It was a Sunday night. I shot up and it ended up being just too much, I guess. And I don't know if maybe there was some, you know, a little Something bit of fentanyl in it, in it yeah, or right. maybe it was a little too pure. Don't know. I wasn't trying to overdose. I was trying to overcome a craving beyond my mental control. Yeah. I was merely trying to overcome a craving beyond my mental control. Hmm. And when I shot up, I went, oh, shit. And then, boom, that was it. Lights out. Now, man. There's a few things that happened over the next 45 minutes um, that I always had a general belief in a higher power, but there's somebody watching out for me because yeah. so much happened over the next 30 or 40 minutes that I can't help but think like, man, you've got more of a reason to live. Yeah. Love it. I hit the floor, you know, and I... I, uh, I was jammed up in between the toilet and the door and it was shut. That girl mm-hmm. heard me fall. Yeah. Um, she came over and she was like 
trying to get the door open and you know there was a crack and she could yeah. see me laying on the floor and my cousin and her friend had been out shopping and they were going to go out to eat and they'd bought ice cream now had they had not bought ice cream they would have not come back and i don't know if that girl had a phone or she would have called 911 right, sure, or, right. or whatever but they came in and they were like who the hell are you and she was like i think he's dead i think he's dead and they came over um and I'm not sure exactly how it happened. Brianna, my my cousin, has since passed away. Um, but because of her, I'm alive today. Um, her and her friend Joe, uh, they ended up busting the door down. Um, hmm. Either one of them called 911. Like one of the two right. called 911 yeah. and the other one started CPR. So they t- talked CPR over the phone. Over the phone, yeah. So they set me up. They you know did whatever. They started CPR. So either Brianna started CPR or called and he or he started CPR and they called. Right. Um, when they called 911, there was an ambulance two trailers away from where I was at. And it turned out to be a false alarm. Right. So there was an ambulance within like 100 feet of the trailer when they called and said, I don't know what happened, but I think my cousin's dead. And they were there within like a minute of the phone call. They came in like they had started CPR. They, you know, and of course the EMTs and the MS workers, they, they knew what they were doing. So they came in, they started doing their stuff. And then my cousin called my mom and dad and they were only about five to 10 minutes away, only like four or five miles. And they, they raced to get there. And my mom and dad came when they pulled me out on a stretcher doing CPR, loading me up into the ambulance. And that's what they saw. Wow. And I, I just, I, it breaks my heart to think they saw me that way. Cause I don't know. I mean, if I saw my brother that way, like yeah, I, that, you, would, yeah, that would change sight. me. Yeah, it would. And, you know, they loaded me up. They did CPR. They did defibrillations. Um, so from my understanding, um, I didn't have a heartbeat or pulse for about eight minutes. So they did CPR. They're providing oxygen to my brain and they did defibrillations. Wow. So for about 16 minutes, they did CPR. Um, with, with, starting with Brianna and Joe and then the, those guys. So they broke my sternum, broke my ribs, but they couldn't get a pulse. A narcotics officer, the guy who, from my understanding, uh, his first DUI on the job was my DUI, my second DUI. Really? Right? And so okay. he knew who I was, yeah. and he had made quite a few arrests. Right. Um, he showed up. He was undercover narcotics at the time, and he found the syringe, and it had fallen in between the linoleum and the wall in the bathroom, right? Because right. it was a trailer, and it was kind of folding you know, up. Folding up. Yeah. And so the syringe had fallen, and and I have glasses, and so in my glass case, I put the spoon and the needle, and that was shut and just on the counter, and there was no drugs, there was no alcohol in the house, it was clean. Right. You know, and so he ended up finding that. I mean, he snooped that out and he found the syringe and he called and said it's a heroin overdose. So they administered narcolone. So at ten fifty six PM uh, yeah. they administered narcolone and reversed the effects and then they induced me in a coma and um I, I was in the coma. I, I'm not sure how long, but it wasn't very long. Um, you know, under a day, and then I came out of it on my own. And one of the most important things happened and most influential things in my entire life happened. There, there was a licensed clinical social worker who was there. He had 20 years of sobriety. He was a heroin junkie, but he had 20 years 20 of continuous years. recovery. Wow. And he spoke to me. And after five minutes of talking to me, I knew he knew where I had been. 
It's like I always dug myself into this hole right. and my parents and law enforcement and everybody tried to help, but they couldn't. And it's like this dude who was in long-term recovery climbed down in the hole with me and said, let's get out together. Let's do it. Yeah. And he made a few suggestions based on his own experience. Right. And he said, you know, my suggestion to you, and this is what I did, is you go to in like residential drug treatment. Mm -hmm. And he said, I would go to 12-step meetings and I would listen and see where you can relate to people in long-term recovery and then start doing what they do. And he right. said, I'll, I'll kind of help you and assist you through this yeah. journey. And, you know, he related a couple of his personal experiences, being homeless, losing absolutely everything, you know, rebuilding his, his whole life, starting right. over. Yeah. <clears throat> all the things that I was like, oh my gosh. And and I don't know why, but he won me over in like five minutes. I was yeah. like, I believe this guy. Because I yeah, I didn't think anybody was going through or knew what I was going through. Yeah, no one's going to understand how bad And I wanted is. to yeah. stop, but I just couldn't. I could not <clears throat> stop or limit the amount once I started. Yeah. And I just, I was like, okay, I'll listen. Had I had left, I would have been arrested for felony drug charges, felony possession, but I didn't. Uh, my parents, they said, this is your last shot. We're going to help you. They drove me to the place. And when I got there, I, I asked my dad, I was like, why are we at Humpty Dumpty? And Humpty Dumpty was my kindergarten school. Okay. I, so I was confused, man. Yeah, right. You're what? <laughs> yeah. And I uh, I came in there and they, you know, they carted me in and I, I was in that wheelchair for a couple of days, like... Man, yeah. like, I couldn't speak well. I couldn't talk well. Like, I had been through a lot of trauma. My my sternum and ribs were broken. Um, I mean, I was I was in a lot of pain. Um, but more pain inside. Yeah. But I did treatment. I stayed. I stayed for you know thirty days. But one of the big things that happened is I I went to a recovery meeting, a twelve step meeting, mm -hmm. and I heard my story. I heard people that were from different walks of life tell me exactly how I felt. Right. And I'd heard that they'd been through hard things and good things and stayed sober. And people were happy. They were laughing. Right. And they were staying, like saying stuff that I could relate to. Yeah. Because I didn't think anybody could relate to me. Yeah. And so that completely separated me from everything. Right. Now, what I didn't know is how lonely I was going to get when I got out of there. Now, I had three relapses. Once when I was in treatment, some guy cheeked a pill and gave it to me. I crushed it, snorted it, and then I turned myself in. I was like, hey, I crushed this I pill. I snorted mistake. it. I don't know how, what happened. And, uh, you know, uh, I had to go announce myself as a newcomer and go through the process in that treatment center. Yeah. And then three days after, somebody came and they uh, – I was diagnosed uh, with ADHD, right, in that facility. Facility, Okay. Now, looking back on it, that's a misdiagnosis. Maybe ADD. I, I definitely know I'm dyslexic. A couple of years right. later, I ended up going through that sure, process, yeah, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely am not attention deficit hyperactive disorder. I don't right. I don't have that. Um, but what's your prescription? Oh, Adderall, right? And then, of course, I was anxious because I got out. And at the time, I didn't know yeah. I had felony drug charges. But when I went oh, to get wow. my license... Guess what they told me? Oh, you can't get your license until you take care of this. Oh, what yeah. is it? Oh, it's felony drug charges. And I knew the repercussions of that because of the, yeah. you know, the 40 arrests at that time. Right. Right. And so I thought, oh, man, like I have anxiety, too. So this girl was like, well, I have Klonopin and Adderall. And so I, that was my second relapse. 
had a couple of weeks, second yeah. relapse one time. And then I was like, okay, I got to stop. I got to stop. So I stopped. I started going back to meetings, started surrounding myself with people in long-term recovery, yeah. found somebody to kind of guide me, started yeah. calling him regularly. And, and, and I stuck with that route and things started to progress. I was suggested to be of service. So I went and donated time at the high school wrestling program that I'd graduated from. And man, that spark to compete right. came back. Came back, yeah, I bet. And within a couple of months, I'd found myself at a gym teaching wrestling and then also getting training. And then I was offered a fight, which I actually backed out of. Really? And not a lot of people know about this, <laughs> right? You're hearing it now, right? <laughs> yeah, you're hearing it now. So I ended up backing out of it. Um, I'd went and done some sparring. I got kicked in the guts. My guts hurt really bad, right? And like, I went to weigh in and I was like, uh, uh, I think it was at 205, and it was against this this well-known guy in the state of Utah. And it was my very first fight, and I was definitely not prepared for it. Right. right? So you knew, like, hey, I better not. No, no. I was gung-ho. I thought I was going to become oh, a okay. champ, right? But I got kicked <laughs> in the guts. Somebody somebody did a spinning back kick and kicked oh, me in the guts. Right. And I had had some, like, dark urination like i'm not going to say it was full red blood in my urine right. but like it was brown and yeah, and i had a couple on. of urinations and, and my stomach really hurt and i you know i did I, I didn't have to cut much weight i had you know maybe a pound to cut or whatever i go i go i show up you know i'd had to put a little bit of training in at a couple of these different places i helped with the high school that year yeah and recovery had taken the second step and I signed up. I, I did everything I was supposed to do. Um, and I showed up. And then and then right before I went in and I took a whiz, and I had a Gatorade. And I had made weight. And I had a red Gatorade. And I'd take a couple of drinks of the red Gatorade. And then I dumped the rest of the red Gatorade into the urinal. Right. And I walked out. And one of the commissioners was there. And he was like, is that your urine? And I knew I was supposed to tell him, no, I dumped my Gatorade, but I didn't say anything because I was deathly afraid of going out and losing. Right. And so they canceled the fight. Mm. And like, I don't know that anybody's ever heard that. Oh, wow. You know, Maybe a few people. First time here, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> Man. Thankfully, I did not go out and compete that night. You know, I feel bad that I left that guy high and dry. Right. Um, but I was not ready. Um, one thing they told me when I left treatment five and a half months earlier, um, was to leave with a higher power. And I did. Her name was Lisa. We had absolutely nothing in common. Mm -hmm. She was 34. I was 20. Right. She was newly divorced. Um, we had nothing in common. Um, so that relationship had, uh, turned into just, you know, I mean, I thought it was great cause there was recovery but she also had a little bit of money, so it was job security for right, me sure, looking yeah. back on it. Yeah. So I was able to help assistant coach the high school. I was able to go to training. I was able to go to meetings all the time. You know, like uh, I had a pretty bad smoking habit, like a, a pack of Marlboro Blend 27s a day, you know, and like, but I was training. I was working. I figured I was better smoking <laughs> and working out than smoking and not working out. Right, right sure, yeah. And uh, <laughs> that fight canceled, and I I felt that inner turmoil um mm -hmm. 
they took me to the hospital and then they did say that I had a ruptured lower intestine. I had a small rupture in my lower intestine and uh, they gave me a morphine pump and I had somebody I was working with who was in recovery and they suggested to not right. do any prescription medications while I was in there or if you do, do it while you're in there, but when you leave, don't leave with any prescriptions. Right. But as soon as I shot that morphine the first time, that was a relapse. Yeah. Looking back on it for sure, me. Sure. Um, that's what started it. Um, that girl that I that I was with, um, while I was in the hospital, my family came to visit me. She went to my home and she stole some of my mom's jewelry and the jewelry that was mm. has been in our family for multiple generations. Really? Um Wow. And I didn't know that had happened. I was in the hospital. As soon as I get out, my parents thought that I had stolen the jewelry. At the time, she had purchased me tickets because my birthday was right around then. Yeah. Right? I celebrated a sober 21st birthday. Now I'm 21. I've got five and a half months of sobriety. Yeah. She buys me tickets to UFC 57. Randy Couture, Chuck Liddell 3. No way. Right? Wow. And I'm like, wow, like You're this like, is it. Yeah. So we get to Vegas, we go out there. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't doing the recovery stuff. I had put that on a, on a, on hold, on hold yeah. right? And it's like, I was focused on fighting, but kind of focused on like yeah. I had all these things. I found out I had felony drug charges, and pretty soon I had to, I had to go to court for that and figure that out. And I was sitting in that UFC 57 and, you know, of course the main event came on and it was yeah. this incredible, I mean, the, just the, the lightning in there is oh, just yeah, incredible. Energy. Right. Yeah. And I'm sitting and, uh, I wanted Randy to win. Right. Um, right. I, I, of course I was a fan of Chuck. Everybody knew Chuck Liddell was a, a, the yeah. superstar at the time. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, he was knocking everybody out. Exactly. And and then Randy Couture was like my idol in MMA. I'm like, yeah. oh, you know, and then he yeah. ended up getting knocked out and, yeah. and lost. Her. And so I was a little bit bummed or whatever. But the guy next to me is like, man, you look really familiar. Because at the time I had quite a bit of cauliflower ear. <laughs> right. And uh, it's I was like, like I've oh, noticed yeah, that man. ear before. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a fighter lying through my teeth. Right. And yeah, I was like, you'll see me out there in a couple years, you know. And like, little did I know that because I would change my life, that. Chuck Liddell, the guy who just knocked out Randy Couture, I would be living with in preparation for the Ultimate Fighter finale in under four years from that time. Wow. Now, that night, I went out, and she bought me a Long Island iced tea. Mm. She had had a relapse yeah. a couple of weeks earlier and was hiding it. And I slid that Long Island iced tea up. I put it up to my lips and I set it down, kind of like when I did when I, when I purchased those two pain pills from my yeah, friend Brady. Right. And and I went, oh, this is not a good idea. Inside. I set it down and she said, it touched your lips. That's pretty much a relapse. And I was like, yep, you're right. And I don't blame her at all. Right. I'm the one that took that drink. But I took that drink and it led to the worst two weeks of my life. Um, four days later, I ended up in Iowa with no pants on looking for meth. I mean, I went on a bender of a bender. A couple of weeks before that, I found out I couldn't leave the state. I had felony drug charges, plus all the pending wow. charges from right. the from 40 the other stuff. Yeah. arrests before. And I just, um, I made it back home. My parents thought I was sober. They were still upset um, about the jewelry. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um 
but I had no idea what they were even talking about. So like I was being honest, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I begged them to let me come stay only they didn't know I'd had that relapse. Um, my dad, he had, he was a Milwaukee's best drinker. So he hid Mm. his little 12 pack in his, in his closet, which he had done for years. So I knew that I snuck in there because that urge to drink. And I like reached around the corner at one o'clock in the morning and I picked up a beer and like snuck it out the door, walked downstairs and I sat down and I don't remember if I opened the beer or not. Um, but I heard my dad's footsteps. Like I was a little kid, like yeah. knowing dad was coming. Like, right. Oh, <laughs> and he came down the stairs and I remember looking up at him and, and he looked at me and he said, son, I thought you weren't supposed to drink. Now, the night that I overdosed, I had a lot of people, because I did a sports center interview, a lot of people asked me, you know, did you did you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Did you right. see God? Did you see anything? The only premonition or thought that I had was this, this, this my grandfather looking at me, um, mm. his glasses were tilted, and he was just looking at me, and he was disappointed. And I, look up, I looked up to my grandpa yeah. more than almost anybody in my life. Yeah. And I saw my grandfather and my dad looking at me when my dad said, I thought you weren't supposed to drink. That disappointment in his eyes. And I set that that beer down, and that was April 16th, 2006, over 15 years ago. Wow. And I have not had a drink or drug since. Congratulations, man. That chokes me up. Yeah, man. Um, <clears throat> the worst and best day of my life because I had to start over. Yeah. I went and turned myself in. I called the district attorney and I said, I need to go to prison. I know I have the charges to go to prison. I mean, I had two felony charges in plea and abeyance already. Already. Plus felony drug charges. Um, I knew I was going to be doing some time. And I went and I said, Hey, I've been drinking. I've been using for the last. She's like, Stop talking. Listen to me. Yeah. And I was like, this okay. is being recorded. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I want you to show up on Friday and I want you to show up sober and we will talk about this. And I said, I don't know if I can make it. My dad talked to a friend that he'd grew up with um, who owned a plumbing company. And he said, court, I don't know if you want it or not, but it might help. You can go interview with this guy who owns this plumbing company on Wednesday. I showed up on Wednesday and I was honest with that guy. I was like, dude, honestly, you don't want to hire me. I got like three days sober. I got to go to these recovery meetings. I have felony drug charges pending. I got to meet the district attorney. I, I don't know if you want to hire me. And he's like, great. Sounds like we can go to meetings together. You're hired. I was like, what? Wow. Okay. So I walked out of there with a job. <laughs> Showed up the next day and went to work. Um, showed up on Friday, left a little early, met the district attorney. And I still told her, I had a little bit of hope, but I told her like, I need to go to prison. I can't stay sober. I've lost everything. I I can't, I can't do this. I had five and a half months sober. I'd celebrated a sober 21st birthday. And then I went back out. And once I started, man, I could not stop. And I had stayed stopped until Friday. So that was my first week. I'd got a job and she said, court, I'm not going to send you to prison, but I'm going to send you to clinical consultants on 24th Street or 25th Street. And it's uh, this nuke program, all guys fresh out of the Draper State Penitentiary, you know, our Utah State Penitentiary, 
and and they're in in aftercare. So they're in this yeah. this uh, this program. So I show up to this meeting the next week, and I'm surrounded by people who all have just served time in the state penitentiary, which is exactly what I asked for. Yeah. And I didn't say shit. I was nervous. You know, it looked like a rough crowd, <laughs> right. right? But I fit right in. Yeah, you're, you're kind of rough there, yourself. <laughs> and I listened to all these guys' stories and how they felt, and I felt just like them. Every one of them. And my story was just the same. The only thing that didn't happen was I didn't serve time in the state penitentiary. Mm-hmm. And I thought, holy cow, I'm scared just like this guy. And they were yeah. open. They were honest. And I thought, man, and I made a lot of friends in there. And I, to my knowledge, I'm still the only graduate of that program that didn't serve time in the state penitentiary. Interesting. And I attended meetings after I graduated because I love those dudes. And yeah. still to this day, I have two or three of friends that have stayed out and are doing positive things wow. in life. And, That's and that, so that helped me. Then I had a couple of self-help meetings a week and then I had to do UAs. I had to call, have a color. And I did that for, you know, for a long time. Right. Um, I immediately started training. I started doing jujitsu. I started teaching wrestling at a jujitsu gym. They would teach me, you know, and then all of a sudden my life started to take off. Getting the fire back. Oh, getting the fire back. A hundred percent. I was working full time. I had tons of energy. I felt good. And then I went on a sober bowling adventure, right? To this little bowling league. (laughs) And I went and I had this little, this little group of guys and we were like doing fun stuff in recovery. And I looked over and I saw Chelsea and I went, Oh my gosh, it's Chelsea. Um, so I walked over and I was like, Hey, and she's like, Court, oh my gosh, you know, how are you doing? She had thought I'd been in an accident. See, her mom worked at the hospital. Right. So she, and figured... they knew that I had, had been in there, but she couldn't like tell her family or anything. But like she, like she knew something bad had happened. So she didn't know if I had been in an accident, if I died. She didn't, she didn't know. And I saw her and she's like, Court, you're alive. And she came over and she gave me a big hug. And she was like, you don't smell like alcohol. And I said, I am completely sober. And she was like, really? And (laughs) she's like, really? In her words is it was everything she wanted, but without all the drugs and alcohol. Right. And she was, I don't know if she was engaged yet, but she was engaged to a guy. And I was still on the rocks with the recovery girl, right? Right. Yeah, right. We both separated. And within two or three weeks, we started seeing each other again. And it was like a crazy experience, oh right? And um, What a story, man. That is like yeah. ridiculous. Um, and, and, and I'm... Um, wow. Within four or five months... Um, I was following the path. I was doing recovery meetings. I was doing what I needed to do, you know, in this 12 step program, I'd made it through the first three steps of this 12 step program. And I was doing just enough to stay sober and be okay. But man, I had a lot on my plate, you know, I mean the Friday meetings, the, the, you know, the, the, this, the piss test, the barely making it, you know, driving 83, or it was an 89 Toyota Camry that was, you know, a four cylinder running on three cylinders, you know, like just barely making it and, and, and making just enough, but working and like, um, recovery started to take a second step to that in my first year of competition in 2007, right? 2006, I got sober Yeah. April 16th, 2006. In 2007, I decided to start competing. Now, one of the, one of the, um, the journeyman plumber that that was over me, 
mm-hmm. was an old karate guy Muay Thai kickboxer. He'd worked with the guy, this guy Sakasim, who's kind of the most well-known and most prolific Muay Thai kickboxer that that first came to Utah. And, and man, the lineage is great, right? Right, for sure. Um, so he had trained with him. Well, he's like, I can start holding Thai pads for you. And so, we, and he's like, I have a little gym, and and um, there was a a good group of guys that would come in and box on Saturdays. So I started boxing. Well, 2007 rolled around, and I decided I was going to start competing. So I partnered with him in this gym, this Northern yeah. Connection yeah, Ultimate right. Combat Training Center. Boom! That was our you know our thing. Guys started coming in. We started training together. We started working. And in my first year of competition, um, I had ten amateur boxing matches. Wow. Two professional boxing matches, um, about 40 competition jiu-jitsu matches from beginner all the way to competing against guys who uh, were world champions. Some, some of the some of the best guys in the world, actually. Right, yeah. um, a, a few, not a lot. I didn't have a lot of high-level competition, but I did, and I had beat some guys that were really well-known um, right. in the world. And so I went from nothing to... 40 competition jiu-jitsu matches kind of like a high school wrestling season getting 40 matches yeah. i got 40 competition jiu-jitsu matches Dang. 10 amateur boxing matches two professional boxing matches and six professional mma fights my very first fight was professional um right because i had i had had a boxing match um and see my goal in this was i needed to learn how to strike with good strikers so i knew i was proficient in boxing with a good boxer kickboxing jujitsu and then keep working on the wrestling and then the right. it factor and and right around that time crossfit started to come out oh yeah right there was yeah. only like one or two affiliates here in the state of utah sure, but yeah. there was a few guys that were freestyle wrestlers <clears throat> and they were took me under their wing and they were like man you should do these hardcore anaerobic workouts <laughs> right. and i started incorporating those with wrestling those yeah. with striking those with takedowns those with jujitsu and you know um I just thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get proficient in these four styles in jujitsu. And then, you know, I'd like, I, I just worked on that. And then I had a ton of competition in that first year. And it just went from zero to 120 miles an hour. But, and I was back on the path. I was back on the path to make it. I was back yeah. on the path. Like I knew where I was going to be. You know, when I looked out there, I didn't know. But I knew that guy was really going to see me. Even though I lied and I wasn't a fighter at the time, I knew was he was going to see yeah. me out there in a couple yeah. of years because I was bound and determined to do it. Love that. That's amazing. And in that first year of competition, I did that. Now, coming up, it was like end of November, right? I started February 2nd, 2007. End of November, I'd found out, um, or uh, beginning of November, I found out I was fighting Jeremy Horn. And yeah. at the time, he had Indeed. just fought Chuck Liddell for the light heavyweight yeah, he title. Yeah, well-known for sure. And I had five professional MMA <laughs> fights. So in my first year of competition, I went from fighting a guy that had had only a couple of amateur fights and went pro to fighting one of the most prolific MMA fighters of all time, Jeremy right. Horn. Jeremy Horn. Right? And um, I had an opportunity to go try out for season seven of The Ultimate Fighter. Right, Amir Sadala won that. That's the yeah, that's the Matt that. Brown time. I actually yeah. sat next to Matt Brown during the tryouts. 
Now, I did really good on the striking. I did really good on the grappling portion, but they had an interview. And in the interview, I was like, I've given up everything. This is my last shot. I got to make it to the UFC. Well, that's what everybody else said. So I didn't have an it factor for them. They didn't give me a call back. Mm. And I thought the poster of me facing off with Jeremy Horn was going to get me on that show. Now, thank goodness it didn't because I don't know where I'd be today. But they didn't call me back. I didn't make it. And right before that fight, I asked my boss for some time off. And I said, man, I need I need some time off so I can train for Jeremy Horn. Now, I had had recovery, right? And you can't give that what you do not have. Yep. Right? Yeah. So my friend Brady calls, and he says, hey, Court, I need help. I want to get sober like you. I wasn't getting in trouble. I was doing good. I was competing. I I mean, I reunited with Chelsea. Our relationship was going pretty good. We had our first baby boy on the way. I mean, there was yeah. it was it was a big life-changing experience. A lot going on, yeah. And um I said, "All right, man. Maybe we'll go fishing, sober fishing, and maybe we'll go to one of those 12-step meetings." And he said, "Okay." So we went to Cabela's, right? And in Cabela's, he went into the bathroom and he snorted something, some pills or something. Um, he came out. We got in the car. I went to drive home, and I noticed he was like, he was high. And I was like, dude, one of the rules was you weren't supposed to get high. Yeah. Well, that's what drug addicts do, man. We get high. But I didn't have compassion for his situation. And so I got frustrated. I was like, dude. What if we got in trouble and I went to prison? Dude, if I don't follow this plan in advance, I'm gone. And I have a baby on the way now. I have a career. I'm working full time as a plumber. Like, dude, what are you thinking, man? I was offended. And I helped him up to his room, you know, and I'd been welcome in his house. His mom babysat me as a kid. Mm -hmm. We babysat him. We made sandwiches at his house. We watched (laughs) cartoons. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I walked in and carried him up to his room and put him in his bed. And I was like, dude, man, you need some fucking help, man. And he's like, fuck you. You're the one with the drug problem, not me. Now, when I left, his mom overheard our conversation. Supposedly, he was supposed to be sober. Right. Now, he was in his mind. He had just snorted his Xanax, right? It was his prescription. Obviously, the doctor didn't prescribe him to snort it. But that's what messed him up. Right. And I didn't know that at the time. I right. just said, dude, you're high. And and you could tell he was he For was sure. out of it. Right. Um I walked out, I went home, and I thought, man, like I I had failed, you know, like I couldn't help him. Uh I went home and I got a knock on my door. The same officer who's responsible for me being live today showed up, knocked on the door, and I was like, Hey man, how are you? And he's like, Good, man. I haven't seen you for a while. And at the time I had, you know, six, seven months of sobriety. Right. Yeah. Um, and he's like, dude, I'm sorry to say, were you, were you at, at, at this kid's house? And I said, yeah. And he said, dude, I parked down the street. I'm going to need you to get your things, tell your family where you're going, but you're under arrest for burglary. And I was like, burglary. And he said, entering a house with the intent to harm so-and-so. And I was devastated because i didn't right um i was i was like i didn't 
I asked for prison six or seven months before that, but now I had so much to live for. Yeah. I had the career. I had the girlfriend. Yeah. I had a baby on the way. I had a possible career in plumbing, which yeah. I knew I was going to, you know, um, I had everything. I was sober. I had had over 200 clean UAs. I mean, I, I was like, I was devastated and I couldn't say anything. I had to call my boss and tell him, man, I'm going to jail. Sorry. Um, and it, like, it was devastating because I went to help. Yeah. Well, the court dropped it for the city, but the state picked it back up because of my prior charges. Right. And they tried to prosecute me on burglary. Um, two weeks before I fought Jeremy Horn and a week before I went to that Ultimate Fighter tryout, I was on a jury trial facing like... Okay, let, let, let's put it this way. Had I been convicted in 2007 right. of that, I would have got out two Octobers ago. Whoa. So I would have had my first son. Whoa. No career, nothing. Nothing. 15 years of sobriety, but in the state penitentiary. Well, yeah. But you know what? Wow. And, 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 that, and that, that could have been a whole nother experience. A whole nother, yeah, wow. But I was found not guilty because I was honest. He told his mom that I came in and I beat him up and that, you know, and, and he made up this story, right? Well, his story changed because he was under the influence. His story yeah. changed, his story changed. And then it changed, you know, through the process of the court hearings. Um, my story stayed the same because I knew what had happened because mm -hmm. I was sober. Thank yeah. God I was sober. Right. And there was two or three people that had heard versions of that story that were willing to go up and say, Hey, Brady told me that this happened. Brady told me yeah. that this happened. And at the end I said, Brady, man, I love you. I don't forgive you, but I love you. And I wanted to help you. And I couldn't, and I'm sorry, man. Yeah. I needed to be in yes, meetings. Exactly. I needed to be sober. And I was found not guilty a week later, which was a tremendous relief, not spending the next it was like 12 and a half years or something like that is what I would have spent um, on the prior charges that I had. A week and a half after that, I fought Jeremy Horn, and it was my first loss. And I went out to see if I could compete, not to go out to beat him. And I did. I competed. I lost a, a decision to him. you know. And I got done with that fight, and I was like, holy cow, I could have put more into that. And I realized at that point, like, Hey man, I can go somewhere with yeah, this. Yeah, I can do something with this. Right? I asked my boss for some days off for training and he said, "Hey, if you need days off, you need to go find another job." And I was like, "I got to do it, man." And so I had quit a mm. great job to pursue this career in mixed martial arts and over the next 2 years I struggled more than any time of my life. Uh Within four or five months, I'd asked my girlfriend, Chelsea, to marry me at my favorite fishing hole on mm -hmm. my favorite river yeah. in my favorite spot. Um, and she said yes. Uh, we got married, um, and I started, like, big life decisions. Yeah. Really becoming a father. Hey, I'm, I got to be here, you know. And uh, I needed two years of sobriety before I married her um, right. because I knew I was a yeah. piece of shit. And... Mm -hmm. I did not want her to marry the person that I knew I was. Right. I needed to change. And 
Um, those next two years really struggled. I moved about a hundred miles away from both of our families and I took a job at a gym. Um, I, I sold supplements. I sold clothing. I did part-time plumbing jobs. I Just whatever you could do to get by 80 to 90 wow. hours a week, making within five bucks a month, you know, and my, and my family wasn't, um, they helped a lot, but they didn't help financially. And so I was responsible financially, you know, and I had three years sober and I'd hit my breaking point where I was uncomfortable with my life. Um, I didn't want to come home to my wife and son, which was right behind the gym in these ghetto apartments, right? right? Mm -hmm. Not because I didn't love them, because I felt like I didn't deserve them. Mm. I was not satisfied with the amount of money I was getting paid at the job that I agreed to get paid that amount, right? My car wasn't good enough, and I wasn't fighting in the organization I deserved to be in. Because yeah. I had three or four more wins right after that. Yeah. I was definitely the top guy in the state, right. ready to make it to that next level, but I had no no clue where to go. And at three years sober, I, I tore my MCL on my meniscus, and I had to have knee surgery. And thankfully, I was at the suggestion of the guy that I had earlier, hey, don't leave with pain pills, and if you can, don't take them when you're in there. Right. So I went through that surgery, and I said, hey, I don't take pain pills. You know, of course, they put me under, right? Sure. And so right. I was under narcotics when they when they put me under. Right. But when I woke up, I was like, no pain pills, no pain pills, no pain pills. I stuck with that. Um, I didn't do it. I could barely get to work. My wife had to drive me to work. I was teaching classes, like <laughs> 14, leg. 15 classes. <laughs> I was making shakes, and my leg was swelling up, and I was watching all my teammates make it. And I was devastated. And one of the guys that I was like real close with made it to the UFC and got a shot. And like that, that hurt my pride. Right. Yeah. And I was going to go home and my wife, she took the prescription, right. And didn't fill it, but she took it and was going to hide it from me in the event I needed pain pills. Right. Mm -hmm. And I called her and I was thinking, Babe, I'm in a lot of pain. And I was trying to talk her into it, basically, right. you know. And so I'm going to come home. And my idea was I was going to come home. I was going to take two of those pain pills, and it was going to be okay. And I got this horrible feeling inside. And I had three years of sobriety right, at that sure. time. Yeah. And this dude walked in, and he's like, hey, somebody told me you're in recovery. You know, would you, would you go to a meeting with me? And I was like, yeah. Dude, can you drive? And he said, yeah. I went to a meeting, and I met one of the most influential people in my life, Um he became my close friend. I ended up over the next four months working the 12-step program for the mm -hmm. first time completely all the way right. through. Awesome. Um, and my attitude and outlook off, uh, on life changed. I realized my car was good enough to get me to and from work, to and from family events, mm -hmm. right? I was making just enough money to get by. Yeah. And I was making it. Yeah. I mean, like, awesome. I was making it. Yeah. And okay. I realized that my wife and my son were at my house and they loved me no matter what I was doing, as long as I was trying and I was sober. Right. Yeah. And that changed. And my knee healed up and I started training. And I was like, well, I'll just make it into the UFC if I make it into the UFC. But I'm giving myself two years. If I don't make it in two years, I'm going back to be a plumber. And right at that two-year mark, another person came into my life, this guy named Will Farah. And he was like, uh, hey, man, tryouts for season 11 of the Ultimate Fighter middleweight seasons next week. You'd be an idiot if you didn't go. 
And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> you know, he's curly hair, right. jolly beard, red, red head, like, you know, and I'm like, what is this guy? And he's kind of out of shape, but he was like, you know, uh-huh. and uh, I was like, dude, wh- who are you? And he came in and he went to wrestling practice, got his butt kicked and loved it. He knew everything about my career. I mean, he was like, I was like, man, who is this guy? And um, the next week he came back like that. It was like a Tuesday and then like a Thursday. And that Thursday he came back and he's like, man, are you going to go try out? Mm-hmm. And I was like, honestly, dude. I number one, I can't afford to fly out there. I could afford to fly out there, but I couldn't eat. And yeah. I said, I have a wife and son right behind here. And I said, I I I can't afford to go out. I said, because I would miss the five hundred bucks I would make this week, right. and I make five hundred bucks a week roughly. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I just there's no way I can do it. I, I'll have to make it in if I make it in, and if not, you know, it's okay. I'll just do my best. And he's like, okay. Dude, two or three days later, that guy showed up with an envelope with 500 bucks in it. And he said, I want to pay your week's wages. And he said, if you follow me out to my car, I will book you flights right now. And I was like, who are you? Who is this dude? And right. I called my wife and talked, you know, and uh, I was like, I, I can't accept this. I don't, there's no way I can pay this guy back. And I told him that. And he's like, I don't want you to pay me back. He said, I want you to go try out. And I was like, there's no guarantees of making it. You know, and I ended up going. And I made the tryouts just like I did before. I did the striking, did the grappling, got done in the interview. And they're like, let me guess. This is your last shot. Dude, it was my last shot. (laughs) You've given up everything. You've been through this. You've been, you know, and they told my story to a T. And I was like, no. I said, uh, the only thing that makes me different is September 9th, 2005, I overdosed on heroin. I was pronounced clinically dead for like eight minutes. Yeah. And I said, if I stay sober for another couple of months, I'll have four years of continuous sobriety. And I said, I had a pretty gnarly story. And they're like, dang, we like you. Great. And I walked out of there, grabbed my bag, and left. They called me three days later and said, you made it. No way. I almost didn't go because I was nervous about the drinking. I was nervous and anxious of the success of, I knew, I'm not going to say I knew I was going to win the show because there's no way of knowing that. But I felt inside if I made it on there, I'd win. Yeah, I saw that first season 12 years earlier, 11 years earlier. And I knew I needed to make it on there. And I knew I was going to do it. Forrest Griffin didn't win that show. But now there's the drinking. And what if I do win and make a six-figure contract and become a UFC fighter and become famous and can afford all this stuff and all this fame? what am I going to do then? Am I going to leave my wife and chase after some girls? Am I going to start drinking? Is somebody going to give me all this, like all this crazy shit went through my head. Yeah, I bet. And I got scared and I told him no. And I called this guy in my life who said, listen, Court, if you make it on that show, do you think you could better financially provide for your family? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, all right, outside of that, do you think somebody who's struggling out there could possibly change because of your story or be influenced to change because of your story of recovery. And I was like, man, Dave, millions of people will see it. He's like, maybe I ought to pray about it. I prayed. I didn't get any inspiration, but I sat. I was Epsom salt bath because I was super sore, and I had this vision of me holding up the trophy, and I started, like, tearing up. And I was like, oh, get this out of my head. Get it out of my head. And I got on the phone. I called that guy back, and I said, I'm going. I'll come. And he's like, great. You know, booked a flight. I went out there, had the toughest fight of my life. My very first fight getting in the house. You're away from everybody. Yeah. 
Um, at the time, all my spiritual and recovery literature was taken from me. All my phone, everything was taken from me. We were put in a hotel room. We had to make weight by ourselves and fight the next day. And then you're fighting somebody you didn't know. You didn't have coaches. Yeah. You know, um, I walked out and 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 uh, Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, Lorenzo Fertitta, Dana White, and Mike Tyson were sitting there. And I mean, there's dudes coming in. I was the last fight on the on the. Uh, uh, for the fight, because you had to fight to get in the house. Yeah, yeah, it was a sixteen-man tournament, right? So it's four fights to get into the finale, a fifth fight to win it, right? It's a thirty-two-man tournament, basically. Mm-hmm. But there was fourteen, so that means somebody could lose and come back, right? Right. And I went out and I fought the toughest fight of my life. I went out and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like the most important people for you to compete in front of, I walked out in front of, <laughs> and I went out into this cage Man. that was just like the gym that I was, you know, training in. And I fought as hard as I could. And for the first time in my life, I got dropped, dropped, like just hit me with a, a, a the Seth Bazinski. He hit me yeah. and he was he's the Polish pistol, oh, man, yeah. one of the toughest dudes. Right. And to my like, he is the toughest fight I've ever had, maybe because of circumstances, maybe because right. of how, how awesome he is. Like it just we were matched like um, and it was a brawl. Um he dropped me and like I thought that I thought that was it. And like I came back. It was like my higher power picked me up, was like, You're yeah. not done yet, you son Keep of a going, bitch. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> so I start you know, and uh, I ended up double legging him and clearing his hips, picked him up and slammed him, and I landed on on his knee on my sternum and I actually broke my sternum. Oh, wow. Right? And I stood up and like we were still going at it. And Tito Ortiz was like, he's gassed. He's gassed. And I'm like, no, I'm not. My chest hurts. <laughs> you know, and like I just kept punching. And then we got done and it was close. It was a decision. And I made it. And I made Ooh, it into that. And they wow. came out and they were like, how do you feel? You know, and I was like, I feel great. You know, and yeah, the, I, I went into that, that ultimate fighter house and I went in there spiritually fit and I went in there to carry the message to people who were struggling that yeah. there was a way out. And if I could make it out, you could make it out. And that's what made it kept me. That's what kept me focused in that yeah. ultimate you fighter. Had house. I had a, a purpose, purpose. Yeah. and I knew why I needed to be there. Yeah. And I went and I fought the number one, uh, the number one ranked guy in my first match. And um, it was a decision loss, which a lot of people thought I won. Mm-hmm. And you go back like, it was definitely a lopsided decision. Um, it was a great fight, uh, but but right. I outstruck him. I, mm-hmm. you know, like I won that fight. It was a bad decision, and quite a few of the coaches were screaming at Dana. Like Chuck was screaming at Dana, "That's a bullshit decision," you know. And um, two or three days later, they found out that they were going to bring me back in because somebody had broke their hand, and mm-hmm. I got another shot. And I went and I finished uh, James Hammertree. And yeah. I finished Brad Tavares in the finals, oh, wow. right? Yeah. And all of these fights are not on my record. So I know the UFC says I'm eight and nine, or uh, yeah, eight and nine. But really, I'm eleven and ten. I have one loss to Nick Ring in right. there, and then I had three fights, and all of those dudes were badasses, oh, yeah. and some of them had ten year careers in the UFC. And there's only like, you know, or at least 10, 10 or fifteen fight careers in the UFC, and right. it's like not very many people made it. Like those dudes were bad chris mcrae james yeah. hammertree he ended up leaving and going off and i think he's a fireman um but like seth Bazinski, dude he had highlight real oh yeah awesome fights ton yeah. dude tough awesome fun to watch um brad Tavares, dude he's a legend man 
uh, he's still out there killing it. Yeah. Love you, Brad. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it's like, Brad. and and I I, you know, it's like I, I ended up getting it, and I got done. I was in the finale, and I had I had four fights in six weeks, and I had done that in the light heavyweight Utah State tournament. I beat four right. guys in six weeks. Right. I'd done it before. I had that. I I knew I could do it. I got done. I got out. And I came home and I called that guy Will, who who and I, and he was the first person I called and I said, "Dude, I made it." And I wasn't supposed to tell anybody, but I was right. like, "Keep it quiet." But I made it, Don't and I love you, and I appreciate you. And then, um, you know, I showed up, and my wife, uh, she came up with, "Hey, by the way, we're pregnant," and we tried right before we left. Right. And she said, "I'm pregnant," and I said, "I'm in the finale," and she said, "I knew you were." Wow. And I was like, holy cow. So that's it was like awesome. these huge things, yeah, right? So and my life changed. Mm-hmm. Um, over the next four weeks, the gym had some turmoil, so I didn't really have a coach. And I called Chuck, and I was like, dude, I really don't have a coach. Would John Hackleman coach me? Because he coached on the show, and he was excellent. Yeah, sure, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, man, th- there was like huge – like. Howard Davis Jr., the Olympic gold medalist, 76 mm-hmm. Olympic gold medalist, one of the standout boxers, one of the best amateurs ever to walk the face of the planet. He became my coach, and he started coaching wow. me, right? And Sammy Henson, the bull, like Olympic champ, or right. uh, 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 a world champion, Olympic silver medalist, like couple-time All-American, one of the baddest wrestlers on the planet. And, and his intensity and... His ability to coach is second to none. Yeah. And, and and I got to work with it. I had literally the best coaching uh, a person could ask could for. have, yeah. Right? In MMA, Jake Shields, one of the top jiu-jitsu oh, yeah. practitioners ever. ever. And he was my training partner all through there, and he coached me. Scott Epstein, also one of the 10th Planet, like original OGs, right? This dude was bad. He had nasty guillotines. Yeah. He helped me with guillotine defense, showing me all this stuff, all these things that I remember to this day. Yeah. And I had the best, you know, and um, I left. I came home. I was excited. I rested up because I had four fights in six weeks. I was busted up. Everything was busted up. <laughs> I took a bunch of ice baths. I like healed up. And then I started training because I knew I had the finale and I knew I needed to win. And it was June 19th. Um, I didn't have coach and it was kind of up and down and I called Chuck and I was like, dude, what, what, what should I do? And he's like, I'll call you back. He called Hackleman, set it up. And he said, Hey man, I booked you a flight. You make it out here. I'll give you a place to stay. So I moved in with Chuck for the next six weeks and prepared for that fight. That's he flew awesome. my wife and my son out. Yeah, you um, dedicated the fight to him. I think if I remember right. Yeah. To him. And, uh, well, I think, is that right? I thanked him. Oh, okay. I told him that I loved him. Okay. Um, Cause like, Dude, he moved me in and he like I I'd made I had brought home about eight thousand dollars, right, from that show. Now, because they paid you when you were in there, it was like thirty five hundred bucks. And mm-hmm. if you finished, you got a five thousand dollar bonus and you got half of it. And then in the finale night, if you if if you showed up to the finale, you got the other half of those bonuses. So I walked with maybe like six or seven thousand dollars and I had four months, right? And then I quit all my other stuff and started just okay i got to focus on winning this yeah. finale yeah. and um you know four or five weeks later i moved and i had to pay all my dues here yeah. make sure everything was set up here and then i went out and i stayed with him and so okay. dude he paid for my breakfast every wow. single day like um and we just we showed up i had the highest level hardest practices june 19th i stepped in that cage and i beat chris mcrae and i became the season 11 ultimate fighter champion 
And I dedicated my fight to all those people who are struggling out yeah. there. And man, I lost it. It was the, one of the highlights of my life. Um, it's amazing. And it was incredible. It was life changing. And, and, and my life really did change because I became a professional athlete that night. Yeah. In the eyes of the public. Of, yeah, you were But legit. then everywhere else, I was just yeah. Court McGee. Yeah. And I had my recovery community. And yeah. at that time, I was very involved. And I've stayed involved this whole time. And that kept me grounded. Yeah. And I had my wife and my son. I was happy. And I stayed in that gym. And I just worked on getting better. And I, I came in contact with some of the best coaches, mm -hmm. some of the best training um, in my whole life. And I've, you know, it's like... Uh, my last 11 years, June 19th will be 11 years I've been in the UFC since I've won that Ultimate Fighter finale. I have fought some of the best guys in the world, you know, like yeah. Robert Whitaker. And wow. I mean, I fought the high, like, I've, Man, I've, he's I've had, no joke. <coughs> I've had well, this you're no joke. incredible you're career. Yeah. Um, but one of the experiences that I had was I got called after my first UFC fight, right? The UFC 121. I fought Ryan Jensen, great big guy, just a, beast he used to be anthony smith's coach um had like 19 first round finishes you know all this stuff like i went out and i fought him at ufc 121 and and it was a win i got a i got a finish in the third round i actually broke my hand in the first round mm. shattered my my second metacarpal um and i i finished the fight i got done i came home and like two or three weeks later i got called by undercover cop and he said, this is officer so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. I need you to call me back. And I froze. I had not received that call in a couple years. Mm -hmm. Right? Man. And I told my wife, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And she's like, duh, call him back. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, okay. Called him back. And I'm like, you know, hey, this is Court McGee. And he's like, oh, man, dude, huge fan, huge fan. Here, mm. Here's the thing. We all love your story. Um the guy that was there the night you overdosed, like, man, like he, like, we got a good group of guys that are behind you and we just love and support you. Um, and, and we love that you came out with your story and that you're in recovery. Yeah. We have this convention for narcotics officers, undercover narcotics officers and DEA. Would you be willing to come share your story at this, this convention? Mm -hmm. And it was a convention that the attorney general of the state of Utah right. at the time had on. So I was like, Yeah. So right. I showed up and I shared my story. And after that, they were like, hey, you need to get into some high schools. They got me into high school. Um, I shared my story and it had a profound impact. So I've shared my story from Tennessee to Harlem, New York, wow. like rural Tennessee to Harlem, New York. Um, that's what the McGee Project is. And yeah. pe people people come forward. I can offer support in different ways. Um, that has blossomed into this incredible journey um, where I can support and help people. I have a program called the right. Punch Pass program where I provide kids an opportunity and young adults to train at mixed martial arts facility and wow. we can help their recovery journey start. And so a lot Very of cool. incredible things have happened. Um, but like one of the big highlights that I like to share is like I turned down a joint from Snoop Dogg. Mm, wow. And, and and being a person in recovery, that's a big deal. That for is me, a big right? deal. You know, and like um <laughs> that is a big deal. <laughs> which is kind of funny, but you know, <laughs> it's like funny, actually and, and people I say, like, it. what are some of the highlights of your you know, and it's like yeah. that's one of them. But man, 
you know, the team I have, the people I have around me, the coaching, the friendships, the relationships, um, you know, it's like um, I couldn't ask for more. I had yeah. nothing when I first got sober, but a little bit of hope, yeah. you know, and, yeah. you know, I have an abundance of friendships and relationships today. Um and I get to be the person that I think my higher power wants me to be. Yeah. I get to be the professional athlete that I think my sons would look up to. Sure. If I'm being honest with myself. Yeah, right. Um, I love it. And I'm forever grateful. Yeah. If I put my recovery first, everything that comes second in my life gets put first class. And I, and I, I stick to that. Wow. Amen, my friend. That's amazing. What an amazing story. Thank you so much. Thanks. For being willing to share this, I mean, you're you're honestly the easiest interview because you, you share you're so well spoken. Uh, I mean, not too bad for knucklehead. Not too bad for a knucklehead, right? <laughs> no, you're no. I I have much respect for you, uh, much gratitude for you as well. I love what you're doing to try to help other people. You know, it kind of gets me emotional because I, I I'm I'm the same guy. Like, I'm definitely not a fighter. <laughs> I would tap on a foot stomp, by the way. I just want you to know that. But you're Someone's, a fighter in other ways. Other ways, exactly. But I do admire you on so many levels, and uh, you, the world needs you, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm I'm one of your fans as well. I want you to know that. Awesome, man. And uh, if people want to reach out to you who's hearing this, they hear your story, they want to get to know you better, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, McGeeProject.org. That okay. is the best way. Um that that is definitely uh the website to go to um contact at mcgeeproject.org okay um and, and that's that's our email okay. um and and that's you know that's that's my passion um right you know fighting is my career how, how would they get you on social media too i just want to make sure you get that too how do, can they follow you there uh just look Court up McGee, name, MMA. Okay. Um, uh, is my Instagram handle. Okay. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I have an athlete page and a personal page. I think the personal page is full, but okay. Um, yeah, that that you can you can follow me or fo follow sure. the stuff. Uh, yeah, just just a forewarning: the only thing I post about is fighting, like uh, training stuff, right? Fishing, family, and recovery. Nothing else. Right. So that that's all. Right. Um, and I've all, always stuck to just that. Yeah. Um, and so that's awesome. If you're no, looking for, for, for madness and craziness, no. like other than some trout fishing or <laughs> events that my sons go to, yeah. like that that's what you're gonna get. Yeah. That's okay. that's the person that uh that I want people to see. No, I love it. No, that's beautiful. I wanna thank you, Court, uh, for being here today. It's an honor to have you on my show. It's, it, it really truly is. So thank you for your time and thank you for being the man you are. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, there you go, folks. Seriously, what an amazing story. Please share this with your family members, especially those you know who are struggling. It doesn't have to be addiction. It can be anything. Court is an inspiration. I mean, the guy was down and out a thousand times and he just kept getting back up. That's what I took from your story. You did not give up. You just kept going. And it truly is amazing. So please share it. And I'm excited. I can't wait to post this. And again, thank you to our sponsors. I love you guys. Thank you for believing in me. And, and until next time, folks. Thanks again, Court. Thanks.